Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Um, we're having a conversation about beyond technology, the fourth industrial revolution in the developing world. We've done a number of things on the, few, uh, the fourth industrial revolution. I'm wondering, I worry if uh, there are going to be some speed bumps on the way to the fourth industrial revolution. And I want to talk about some of the speed bumps. I think there's a lot of promise in these emerging technologies, but I also think there's going to be a number of speed bumps and maybe uh, some hiccups along the way. So I want to talk about that. Um, I'm really grateful uh, to the Danish government who've helped us uh, to convene this work. Uh, we're publishing this anthology called Beyond Technology. Um, don't make it a Netflix night tonight and <laughs> clear your calendar and read our anthology, but I think there's some really thoughtful pieces in here about um, the promise and maybe some of the, the hiccups that I'm describing uh, and challenges. So I think at the same time, I do think that one of the things we need to be thinking about is if, if it's as promising and as important a change that many are talking about, what does that mean for aid agencies? What does that mean for um, the World Bank or the US government? Does it mean, if, it's so, if this is such a, a consequential mind shift, does this mean that we have to think about how we do business in a very different way? If this is so important that we, in essence, win this, what does this mean in terms of um, how we operate? And I think there's potentially uh, reason for us to think that, uh, um, that we may have to rethink the way we operate and, and, do, and, do, uh, and do our work. So I've got some really thoughtful panelists um, that I'm uh, glad are, are going to be are here. And I'm going to join the panel, and we'll, we'll kick it off. So I think you have their bios in, in front of you, but I'm going to ask my friend uh, Michael Ekman, who's come from the, he is the Deputy Tech Ambassador of Denmark, and he's based in, in on the West Coast. So I'm going to ask, Michael, can I ask you to, to kick this off, please, in terms of, you, you've written a piece, your, your, your boss wrote a piece, Casper, uh, Ambassador Casper Klinge wrote a, wrote a piece uh, for the anthology. So could you first explain, what is a digital a tech ambassador, because I think it's quite an interesting innovation. But I also think Denmark, as a, as a, as a tech-friendly society, um, has been thinking about these issues. And you do this for a living. You're thinking about the issues of what the fourth industrial revolution, what does technology mean for your society? I, I think you have some insights on this. So please, why don't we, I'll ask you to kick this off, please. Thank you very much, Dan. <clears throat> and um, thank you for hosting this, uh, this event. Uh, in reality, I should be asking everyone here what a tech ambassador is supposed to do. I guess that's what think tanks try to help uh, governments do, is actually to think about policy in, uh, in a sort of increasingly uh, complex and digital world. Because that's in fact what the idea of, of a technology ambassador, a tech ambassador, is all about. It is to try and put uh, governance and uh, foreign policy and diplomacy back into the equation at a time where we feel uh, that the world is running a little bit uh, fast, at least a little bit faster than, than many governments can uh, can keep up with. Um, I am um, I am from Denmark. We're a small, open, advanced economy. Uh, we're also one of the most digitalized countries in the world. 
according to the United Nations and the EU at least, 60% uh, of our GDP comes from trade. So you could say we're pretty dependent on, on what's going on uh, right now in the world, the fourth industrial revolution, uh, whatever you might want to call it. In fact, we uh, are probably pretty well uh, placed to succeed in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, but over the last uh, couple of years, or let's say five years, I think it's become increasingly clear to, uh, to my government as well, to, to countries like Denmark, that technology brings huge opportunity, but certainly also some new risks and challenges that we need to look at. If you are hyper-digitalized, that's a good thing, but you're also more vulnerable uh, and you have uh, a lot of risks uh, related to how you secure yourself uh, in the cyberspace, related to protecting your citizens' data, related to safeguarding your democratic institutions. So for all of these reasons, uh, the Danish government decided uh, about uh, two years ago that um, sort of our traditional diplomatic tools would not suffice in a world where you have at least two or three different trend, trends changing the, the, the landscape of foreign policy. Or at least that would be our argument. The first trend would be that you have this whole set of new technologies, data-driven technologies, some would call it the fourth industrial revolution, which includes Internet of Things growing from around 30 billion today to around 80 billion connected devices in, in only five, six years' time. You have artificial intelligence, which is uh, today sort of a political buzzword, uh, as, as much as it is sort of machine learning technologies, computer-driven algorithms, and so forth. The fact is that today AI has become sort of a national uh, parameter for, for, uh, for success. I think more than 30 countries now have an AI strategy, including uh, the Danish uh, society. We launched one uh, about a month ago. Um, the second trend is that you have you know, a, a, you know a, a small group of extremely powerful and influential uh, actors, the big multinational technology companies where most are based in Silicon Valley where uh, we spend most of our time, our office or our embassy, if you will, is placed in Palo Alto. But these companies have begin, become powerful to an extent that they surpass uh, even nation states in political influence and economic power and certainly in societal or global reach. I think Facebook has about 2.5 billion users monthly on uh, on one of their four major platforms. That's a pretty pretty high number and an incredible societal influence. And then what this report is about, my sort of my third point would be, um, technology has become a geopolitical discussion, and it's even become a value-based or value-driven discussion. It's become about what what kind of principles, demo democratic or not, uh, what kind of rights, what kind of levels of privacy do we want to enshrine in technology and the way they impact our society. I'll be very honest with you, when we arrived uh, as career diplomats in Palo Alto in Silicon Valley about a year and a half ago, if we mentioned GDPR, you know, it was almost like being... What is GDPR for the, so, for the television audience? Pardon me. <laughs> GDPR, of course, is the EU General Data Protect Protection Regulation. Beautiful, very easy word to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to say. When we mentioned GDPR, uh, we were kindly uh, shown the door and asked not to come back any time soon. <laughs> At least it was a little, it was a little bit like, like this. That discussion has changed a lot over the last year and a half, even in a place like Washington, D.C., I believe, without being here on a daily basis, that there is a discussion around privacy uh, which was previously uh, reserved for places like Brussels or at least European uh, capitals. So what we do 
It was a long intro to say what we do as a as a embassy to technology and as a tech ambassador is to try and strike up a conversation with big tech, with the companies that are based in Silicon Valley and Seattle, but also in places like Shenzhen and Hangzhou and Shanghai and Munich and elsewhere about some of the really, really big questions facing society, everything from, from uh, taxation issues to how do we protect privacy, how do we fight terrorism online, what kind of regulation makes sense and what does not make sense, honestly. Um, and also talk about what are the kind of values we want, what are the kind of level of state data ethics we, we would like to see in the technology that impacts our society. So instead of going to the White House and State Department and USAID and elsewhere to discuss traditional foreign policy issues, we go to Mountain View and Menlo Park and Facebook and Google and Seattle and so forth and have almost the same kind of discussions but just with a new set of very important uh, actors. So that was sort of a, in very short what a tech ambassador. So, so Michael, could you just, just so everyone's aware, could you talk about where is Denmark's position on 5G? Well, like everyone else, I think uh, it's very important for us to expand on our current 4G network. So we are, like everyone else, investing heavily in 5G. Um, I assume that's not actually the question you that's wanted to ask. No, uh, I, f I follow the news as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> while I'm I don't get out much, but even I know there's something going okay. on in 5G. Which, which of course there is. Um, in terms of who will provide 5G, if that's what you're asking, I yes. think the government, uh, without being privy to the to the discussions, the government government has decided that Ericsson will provide the sort of uh, sort of core of the, the 5G network in uh, Denmark. So can it, could I just I just want to take advantage because you're spending a lot of time thinking about these issues. Is the country, is the government of Denmark, is it, is it, are they worried that Danish workers are going to get lose all their jobs to robots? I think that's as big a discussion in Denmark as it as it possibly is here in the in the U.S. and elsewhere. And I think for good reason. I think there's a lot of anxiety around what automation will bring, even to a country like Denmark. As I said, you know, we pride ourselves of being fairly well prepared for what's coming our way in terms of having pretty flexible, highly educated uh, labor force. Uh, we're a much smaller country, of course. Right now we have very, very low, like like, like the US does, very low uh, levels of, of uh, unemployment. Um, in fact, if, if you wanted to make the argument, you could almost say that uh, automation would be a gift sent from heaven to, to Denmark because we do need um, uh, to to uh, to increase our productivity in the in the coming years. I think what's striking about this whole discussion, and you're the expert, I'm only a, a, a diplomat on this. But what's striking is that when you read the reports on uh, the future of work, how many different estimates in in you know to east, west, north, and south you you will get on these issues. So I think the only thing we know for certain is that we don't know anything about what's gonna what's and, gonna happen. And I would argue that a lot of the, the the estimates on job loss have been revised downwards on an ongoing basis. I had a boss in Argentina um, who was the head of the Citibank in Argentina, and he had a wonderful expression in Spanish: "El papel banca todo." And papel banca todo means you can basically create any argument you want and justify it intellectually. The papel banca todo. So I think in the case of four industrial revolution and job losses and robots, el papel banca todo. We can put up anything we want and basically justify it. We don't. I, I agree with you. I'm not sure we really know. I think I do think we need to be flexible and prepared for it. And I think we need to take proactive actions. And I think your government is taking proactive actions. And I think as an example 
for all of us. I don't think we're taking all the proactive actions as, as, as the West we need to be doing, but I think we're waking up to the fact, and, and you're, you, are, you all are, are, are helping being part of the wake-up call and what you're doing out there on the West Coast. So good. Thanks for being here. Okay. So, okay, Michael, thanks. You were one of the contributors for, to this anthology. Uh, you and your colleague Sonia Jorge, talk a little bit about the organization that you're with. Mm -hmm and talk about the contribution that you made because I think it's, it's an important and interesting um, insight that I think this group will benefit from hearing from you, please. Great, thank you, Dan. Uh, so my name is Maiko Nakagaki and I'm with Alliance for Affordable Internet. Uh, we are a global coalition of over 90 members um, and we are working to drive down the cost of the internet in low and middle income countries through policy and regulatory reform. Um, so, as many of you know, one of the SDG goals is to achieve universal affordable access by 2020, but this goal is not realistic given that we just celebrated the 50% internet penetration rate at December 2018, and we have a really long way to go. If you look at the stats carefully, the majority of people who are still offline are women in developing countries, so any projects or uh, initiatives that uh, multilaterals or governments uh, are doing to bring the last mile connectivity or people online, it needs to address this gender gap. And it's very urgent. Um, we have done some studies and we predict that at this current rate we won't achieve universal access until 2043, which is well beyond the target date. Um, so we produce affordability reports and look at why this is happening and um, the number one reason people can't come online is cost due to uh, ineffective policies in place, um, infrastructure costs and so forth, uh, accessing the internet is prohibitive for many people. We define affordability as one gigabyte for 2% or less of average monthly income. And in the latest study we did, uh, as of March of this year, of the 99 countries we looked at, only 40% reached this um, target rate. So it's really alarming and we have a lot to do uh, in order to achieve this. We think that the solutions are uh, achievable. We just need the political will of countries and international organizations and private sector to come together and address them. So three solutions that we propose in this chapter. One is uh, to address the policy uh, gap uh, by looking at the affordability. Um, so for instance, uh, as some of you may know, uh, Universal Service Fund is a great pot of money that governments can use to connect the uh, unserved areas. Uh, perhaps they can be more gender responsive and target households that reach women. Another policy, uh, long-term coal, can be to uh, invest more in digital education so that you create a population that is uh, not just consumers of the internet, but producers and creators of internet content. Another thing that we have discussed uh, thoroughly is dental, uh, sorry, gender equity in uh, investments. Um, similar to USF, we looked at USFs in Africa and out of, um, to give you specific numbers, out of the 37 nations in Africa that have USFs, only three have uh, explicit uh, targets relating to women and girls, so that's a huge gap. Um, and we also encourage uh, multilateral banks to do a better job at uh, investing in the ICT sector. We, look at, we looked at um, the numbers between 2012 to 2016 of how much money they've invested in the ICT sector. And out of the 500 billion plus investments that MDVs have collectively invested in low and middle income countries, only 1% were dedicated to ICT investments. So I think there's a lot that uh, 
as a multi-stakeholder approach can be taken to adjust this gender gap. So, Michael, I was we were having a conversation in the pregame. How, how consequential is the fourth industrial revolution? If, is it as consequential as many people say? And then B, if it's as so consequential, should the aid system, the aid industry, fundamentally rethink the way it does its business to respond to this massive sea change? I think that, I mean, if half of the population is still offline, this digital revolution can't, you, know, you can't reap the benefits of it at all. And um, it's just, the digital inequality is widening as you know people talk about 5G and AI and more people will be left behind. And that's more of a alarming, um, you know, it, it's just alarming that we should pay more attention to. So if, if we were to close the gap, there's in addition to the, 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 the issues of justice and the issues of equity, I'm assuming there's probably some upside in it for us as well. There's a whole lot of human potential that we'd be plugging into the system. There's a lot of there's a lot in it for us as well as it doing the right thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the projects we're working on with the World Bank is this thing called Moonshot Project, where the World Bank um, has uh, they want to achieve their universal access on the continent on Africa by 2030, and we're developing strategy uh, with them. And one of the things that we have been looking at is, you know, how much investment is needed for infrastructure, infrastructure and digital content so that people can become produ uh, you know, producers and they have job opportunities, but eventually that leads to economic growth um, and so forth. So. Good, thank you. Okay, Nilmini, thanks for being here. You're an affiliate here at CSIS. You have a, a really interesting day job that I hope you'll, you'll tell us about, but you've had, you also are a chair, you're one of the co-chairs for the Millennium Challenge Corporation's advisory board. And um, you had, I'd say, many of the most consequential things that happened in international development on the Hill over a period of time happened when you were working for Ed Royce. So I'm really glad you're here, and thanks for contributing to this anthology. Thank you for having me. Um, I think this is an incredibly exciting topic. The fourth industrial revolution, I mean, encompasses everything, like artificial intelligence, biotech, genomics, you know, blockchain, like quantum computing, robotics, like energy storage, right? It's like everything exciting is happening, and it's happening now. More is coming. And we need to figure out how we adjust for all of this massive change. Um, you know, there's that, that Gibson, that great Gibson quote, right? The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Mm -hmm. And our challenge is really to think about how to shape the future and then how to distribute it um, around the world. As people who care about the global community, we need, that that's really needs to be our mission. And I think that we need to not, we need to think about the topics we're going to address. So we need to change what we're doing in international development. But we also need to change how we're doing it. And that might mean thinking about more creatively about how we crowd in the private sector into different aspects of development work, but also just changing how we do development work altogether. You know, the, if you think about our industry, the development industry, it's been pretty stagnant over the last you know, decades, right? We still do things um, on email and PDFs, and we have very um, rigid requirements of what kinds of people can work on, on projects and even what the parameters are for those projects. So uh, we're in a moment of, of, we, of major rethink where we need to kind of sit down and go, 
the, we're in a new world, we're in new challenges, we have new tech. Uh, what can we do completely differently? Do we need to shelve some of the ways we're doing things in the past and just start new? I mean, that's what we did during the Bush administration when we created the Millennium Challenge Corporation, right? Instead of rehauling USAID, we created a new institution uh, to do things differently. Do we need to do that again, uh, creating a new institution, or do we need to rehaul the institutions that we have? Yeah, and so I think um, it, when you, from where you're sitting, could you talk about um, how you're seeing the changes? That you, what, one of the things I liked about your article was a, well, your piece was about the fact that there's there's lessons to be learned, perhaps from other initiatives such as Power Africa, but also the America. The, there's an upside for American industry here. Just talk a little bit about some of those some of those aspects. Absolutely. So the, I mean, there's all these great, exciting technological changes, but the one that underpins everything really is internet access. And, um, and so that's, I think, the thing that we need to put first and foremost, because you can't have people benefiting from any of the other things if they don't have basic access to the internet. Um, and when, when we think about internet access, one thing we have to be really careful of is of the two emerging worlds on the internet, right? The one that has the shared values of the United States and one that has the shared values of China. And so we really need to think about very carefully about how we promote internet access and how do we ensure that, that our values are carried across, that we don't actually have this split, but we keep them together. Um, that is going to be really important for U.S. companies. If you think about where our growth is in, in our, our economy, it's, it's very linked to, to tech. So getting this right is not just a foreign policy issue. It's like a fundamental American economy issue. Um, one of the things that was very innovative with Power Africa, which was um, founded on the Electrify Africa Act that Chairman Royce um, championed, and I, ha I wrote for him, um, and implemented by the Obama administration and now the Trump administration is Power Africa. One of the really innovative things about Power Africa is it has a market-based approach. So it's not just giving grants to people, but really thinking about how do you get companies to do these projects and so that when U.S. funding leaves, the, pro the, the deals are still being done. And um, Power Africa has been immensely successful. It has provided first-time electricity access to more than 58 million people. So, I mean, it, it's just really a remarkable number. Um, but one of the very exciting things that it does is it, it helps get transactions done. Um, our team at Tetra Tech is, is the lead implementer of, of Power Africa, but it also helps uh, do reforms so that we don't need to knock heads on the transactions going forward, but there's reforms so that future companies can come up and, and um, work more closely together. Um, that, that kind of market-based approach is what I think is, is brings the sustainability to the table. I think a lot of times when we talk about sustainability, we talk about environmental sustainability. And this is really thinking about economic sustainability. How do we make sure that these projects continue um, onward? Um, power is fundamental, right? And more than a billion people still don't have electricity on Earth. And um, 
you know, Chairman Royce decided to do the Electrify Africa Act first before working on the Digital Gap Act, which built on a lot of the work that, that the Alliance for Affordable Internet worked on, because you can't have the internet without electricity. It just doesn't work. Um, so so that, that that's like a fundamental thing. We need the electricity, we need the internet, and then we can start having people access uh, the future. Thanks very much. Okay, Steve, uh, thanks for being here. You had a, a really interesting career on Wall Street, and your career has been at the intersection of finance, technology, and emerging markets. And one of the things that, that has been talked about in terms of the promise of uh, the fourth industrial revolution is how folks are able to pay for things and have a, a financial life online in a different kind of a way. Could you talk a little bit about that? And it, it seems to me one of the things, sort of similar to what I said at the beginning about there's a series of sort of regulatory speed bumps potentially. Could you just talk a little bit about that? It may not be so easy uh, and there's a series of reasons for why that is. Thanks for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, so, you know, when we wrote this article, I often think the worst dinner invite you can get in town is to my house. Uh, my wife is a former Fed regulator, and I'm a former investment banker who used to sit on a management committee of a large global bank right after it was through a crisis. And so uh, we spend a lot of time at our dinner table talking about regulation. We decided to combine our uh, super- Pass the ketchup. Yeah, right? exactly. And yet our daughter is remarkably well-adjusted. Uh, well uh, so. We decided we would torture all of you by combining our powers and writing this article. Uh, and you know, the the thing with regulation is, as a venture capitalist, I often get people walking into my office, and I actually use this in, anecdote in the thing where they say, "Hey, I went to whatever elite school you want to think of. I got funding from Kleiner or Sequoia or Greylock. They'll, they'll mention some big tier one venture capital. I got." Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley interested in investing or partnering with this new solution I've had that's going to revolutionize the world of, uh, world of fi uh, financial services. And then you kind of ask them the question, well, have you talked to the regulators? And they go, no, 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 the regulators, when they see how great this is, they're just going to do what we ask them to do. No, no, and I'm seeing head shake here. Now, the thing is, in New York and San Francisco, people go, yeah, sure, let's go talk to the regulators. And the regulators sit there, and they politely nod, and then they go, that'll never happen. <laughs> and part of the reason it'll never happen is because we, we all like to think that financial services are local, but they're not. It's a big, gigantic global web. And every transaction, whether it's happening in Botswana or New York City or Boise, Idaho, is going through the same gigantic trans, uh, system. And so when you start thinking about that, there are all of these great ideas about how we can actually build an infrastructure around this, but there's already an infrastructure built. And the, often the parallel I see when people talk about financial services and what's going to happen is the leapfrogging effect we saw with telecom. Now, I was in Russia in the early 90s when the, the wall came down and the first wave of uh, privatizations happened. And I remember people going from immediately they stopped using fixed line and they went to cell phones because it was just easier to get a cell phone. But the infrastructure was there and the regulations were there. The financial services already have this big, gigantic regulatory system. But what people aren't really trying to do is think of themselves as like apps fitting into that system and how do they go about it. So there are th there's an overarching regulatory system called Basel III, and this is the big global regulatory body that makes the decisions about what is reasonable, about capital, about issues related to 
how one can finance and, and this is a, this is if you're a bank if you're a bank. so if you're a bank you've got to set aside certain amounts of money so there's like the major league baseball commission for global banks sits in basel switzerland and they've put out a series of edicts and this is the third round of them called basel three right, right? and basel three one of the things steve has been after the financial crisis, they said, you've got to set aside yet more money if you want to lend money. And so one of the, one of the unintended consequences of Basel III has been if you're a poor country, if you're an African country, there's a lot less easy bank money sloshing around for really poor countries because of this reason. Is that right? That's very much right. It also, so it's affected three large areas, one of which is emerging market lending, as Dan uh, very nicely pointed out. Another area is SME lending. And as Mark Carney, who's often called the central banker of the year, uh, he pointed out, this has really affected the capital requirements set around SMEs are as much as 50%. So all of this talk that you often hear about folks saying, let's promote SME lending, it doesn't really work because. So if I want to lend 100 bucks as a bank, you've got to set aside 50 bucks to lend the 100 bucks, right? Right. If, so right. That's and not so great. No, and if you think about the banks are just largely fractional lending institutions and that they make money necessarily by how much they are able to get leverage into their systems. So for example, if you invest in a T-bill, it might only yield 2%, but you're allowed to leverage it seven to eight times. So you get talking about a 16% return. You might be investing in an SME, which is maybe will give you a 7% return, but you can only leverage it two times. So it's a 14% return. So you're going to do the T-bill, right? So you're basically crowding out uh, investment in SMEs. Now also built into Basel III are some issues which were set up because, uh, again, post 9-11, uh, where people were worried about terrorism financing, which are anti-money laundering and know your client regulations. Now these two things are basically saying you should know who you are lending to, you should know who is depositing money in your bank, and you should know who's making the payment. That's all wonderful if you have a physical branch or if you have a relationship. But a lot of time in development, we talk about mobile money or mobile payment systems or customer engagement or connectivity-based finance. And all of these issues are meant so that you can reach the smallholder farmer in the field who doesn't necessarily have a bank account or any access to a bank account, which is wonderful. But how do you know that that smallholder farmer in the field isn't actually a terrorist claiming to be a smallholder farmer in the field? And so all of these issues kind of come to a head within the regulatory system. And if you're a, you know, we, we like to promote the idea of this disruptive innovation, but it's still within a system that is very much a static and uh, really almost, as you use a great term, it's meant to be a speed bump, but I, I would almost think it's like a toll gate where nobody has an easy pass. And so the line is very long. Okay. So I'm glad you raised the issue of EasyPass. I want to talk about the issue of privacy. And I want each of you to talk about the issue of privacy as it relates to the issue of fourth industrial revolution, because I think there's an ongoing global debate about privacy. I, I'm, I'm dating myself by, um, I remember in the early 2000s, someone told me a story that shocked me profoundly, that in divorce cases in the United States, that um, if someone said, well, I was really at a restaurant and really they weren't at the restaurant and they were somewhere else with someone they shouldn't have been with, that the courts could use easy pass data, 
because like you crossed a toll that you weren't supposed to and they'd go look at the old easy pass and say, well, you said you were gonna be at the, you know, you were at work, but it says you were at some nightclub, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with someone you shouldn't have been with. So, so there, this issue of privacy has all sorts of unintended consequences. Could each of you just talk about the issue of how should we think about privacy and who owns, who owns what data? If you could just talk about those two issues because I think they're related and just briefly on this. I know this is a, these are very complicated talks but I'd like each of you just to reflect on this one, this issue of who owns the data and privacy. Michael, let me start with you. Well, I'm, I'm from Europe. We have um, the EU General Data Protection Regulation, of course, <clears throat> the GDPR, as we talked about before. And the idea or philosophy behind GDPR is that you own your data. So every citizen owns their own data. So you have the right to be forgotten, um, as it turns out. Uh, it's been in force a little over a year. And I think uh, it's been a interesting year. It's also been a painstaking year for some, I guess. Um, for citizens, all of us received, uh, you know, hundreds of emails in our inbox, you know, uh, reminding from, from different mail, uh, different mail groups uh, if we wanted to continue or not. That's a small thing, but also for companies, it's been a, it's been a tough thing to implement and prepare for. Um, I think sometimes on this side of the Atlantic, to be very honest with you, within these four walls and the two cameras in the back of the room. So, um, so just think of it as like off the record, but on the record. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, sometimes we hear from some of the big American technology companies that uh, GDPR is an example of Europe out to get us. You know, it's basically directed at, at, uh, at uh, sort of hitting out at the Silicon Valley based companies. What that point misses is the fact that for all European companies, GDPR is mandatory. So you can't decide whether you want to be in Europe or not. You just have to comply with GDPR. And if you think it's easy for a small or medium-sized Danish uh, company, uh, whatever sector it might be in, to prepare and comply for GDPR, uh, you're mistaken. It's, it's, it's been quite uh, tough. In fact, I think some of the big American tech companies, it goes back to my point before on how the rhetoric has changed a little bit, have now found out that maybe GDPR is actually a competitive advantage. If you are a cloud provider and you have the muscle to, to build a system that is GDPR compliant, you can also offer that system out to smaller companies and say, come to us, and we'll take care of it for you uh, in exchange of a small fee. So I think the discussion has changed. The interesting thing will now be to see what happens on the regulatory side in terms of privacy, uh, I think uh, we follow the debate closely um, in DC, of course. We have also noticed that some of the big uh, technology CEOs uh, like Mark Zuckerberg and, and Tim Cook and others have come out and, and basically argued in favor of an American version of uh, some sort of uh, privacy act. Whether that will happen or not, all of you in this room are probably better equipped to, to, to say than I am. Uh, in California, where I uh, live, we've of course seen California enact the, the, sort of the most ambitious version of, of a, a privacy act. So a lot of things are happening, not just in Europe, uh, where it's traditionally been a big discussion, but also now in the US and possibly other parts uh, so just just who owns your what you, you had this discussion about open data? Can you talk a little bit about open data and what sure. you guys do with that? I mean, one thing is the private, sort of the, the personal data discussion, which which is the GDPR kind of discussion. You know, what we typically talk about when we talk about Facebook and, and and you know social media and these kind of platforms. In Denmark, an equally big discussion I think is around public uh, data. The interesting thing, if I can characterize it a little bit, between Europe and and the U.S. is in Europe we trust 
typically trust governments with our data, but not companies. On this side of the Atlantic, it's probably the other way around. You do not really trust government too much, but you're okay with, with companies using your data. So in, in Denmark, we, are, we have, as I said, we are the most digitalized public sector probably in the world. We have large public data sets, including a, a civil registry system that's been in place for 50 years, which basically means that everyone uh, sort of on the government side birth, knows births, deaths, divorces. Birth, birth to death, education, where have I lived, who have I married, who have I divorced, who have I remarried, uh, maybe because of toll uh, right. fees and so right, forth. Right. Um, <clears throat> so, so all this is registered and used actively in the public sector to provide services and to help us out. Uh, one uh, sort of small fact that usually get Americans to fall off the chair is that uh, for an average Dane, uh, spends about 12 minutes a year on, on filing taxes. That's, that's the maximum. And, and only more than that if there is some kind of issue or some kind of challenge. So I basically don't think about taxes in Denmark. And uh, having lived in the US for two years, I know <laughs> I realize that's not, that's not the case here. There's but something like a million people who benefit from the tax assistance filing industry here in the US. Yeah. Exactly. And that's and, you know, another good example when talking about sort of the fourth industrial revolution and the developing world is how when we talk about leapfrogging, and it's some of the excellent points that, that you mentioned also in, in, in the report, uh, that maybe developing countries actually have a little bit of a step up on some areas, at least in terms of, of being able to sort of circumvent very complex uh, legacy taxation systems, for example, and then build new, smarter, um, uh, data-driven ways of, 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 of looking at these, uh, these issues. Okay. Issues of, of privacy and data. Michael? Sure, thanks. Um, so the Alliance for Affordable Internet sits at the Web Foundation, which is a foundation headed by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who's the founder of the Web. We celebrated the 30th anniversary of the Web um, this past December. And one of the things that Tim Berners-Lee wanted to do was make the Web open and free and accessible to everyone. And he is very, as you can imagine, very distraught with what's happening at the state of the internet and the web. Um, so one of the things we're doing is uh, this uh, open, uh, transparent process called Contract for the Web, where we invite governments, companies, and citizens to come together and define what exactly is a web that can be open and accessible to all. And one of the issues we're tackling and um, looking into is privacy and who owns the data. Ultimately, we want individuals to own the data, but we know that that's not um, feasible in some instances. So if that's the reason, how can we uh, have responsible data ownership by the private sector, and how can consumers or citizens um, debate that with the public sector and the private sector? So these are some of the dialogues we're having. Um, we'll be launching the actual contract, hopefully by summer or early fall, so stay tuned. Thank you. No mini. So the GDPR, it stands for General Data Protection Regulation, and it, it has compliance requirements for companies and countries beyond its borders. And the problem with GDPR is, is that it's becoming the global data protection regulation, right? It's, it's becoming the standard for, for, for our whole world. And that's a problem for the United States, um, especially since the leading companies that, that are relying on this data are American. So I, I think that this is a major opportunity and necessity for the United States to, to develop our own standards that we, we send out that work best for our country. Um, and uh, I think that allowing Europe to get so far ahead of us on this is, is 
a competitive disadvantage for the United States. The flip side of privacy is cybersecurity, right? So privacy is, is people, we're giving you access to our data and cybers, they're taking it. And so I think that as we think about privacy, we need to think very carefully about cybersecurity at the same time. And when we, we're thinking about development programming, we should, we should be integrating that. You know, how many of you that work in development have integrated cybersecurity into your projects, whether that's providing uh, enhanced cybersecurity for the country we're working for or the companies that we're working with? Um, how many are, are integrating privacy? I've, um, when I was a Hill staffer, I had a company come up and do a briefing about this great work they were doing in rural villages, and they were uh, trying to um, stamp down dom domestic violence. And they had this map of where domestic violence had occurred to the hut level, right? Mm -hmm. Like, not okay. You do not want women exposed, uh, you know, that that they, they were victims of domestic violence and have that you know, all over the world. It puts them at risk uh, from their abusers. So we need to think about including privacy and cyber into our core work. Steve? So I think the issue of privacy is that you, you pretty much have none. Uh, and you've made an implicit trade-off the minute you picked up your, star, your smartphone, the minute you logged onto Google, the minute you opened up Facebook that morning or Instagram or whatever social media you like, which is you have given people access to your location, what you're doing, who you're talking to, and what you're talking about. And I think you have to start with that assumption. You know, even walking through the streets of D.C., they have uh, cameras all over the place. If you ever get in a car accident, you find out about that really quickly uh, because they'll show you pictures and tell you exactly who was at fault. Uh, speaking from experience. Uh, you know, there, Nomini raised, there were a lot of great points raised. One of the ones Nomini raised is there, there are two sides to this coin, and I, I think when we also start talking about regulation, it gets into that. You know, one side is how many people heard about what happened in Baltimore? So, so Baltimore was hacked. The city of Baltimore was hacked. And what's more is they ha now they're being held hostage. So the city of Baltimore is being held hostage by cyber hackers who now control a whole bunch of information and data about people who live in Baltimore and ba people in Baltimore can't pay their, their water bills. That's, that's one aspect of it. So it, 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 is the trade-off there that you have more privacy, more security? What's the trade-off there? So then I think about in financial regulation. You know, one of the trade-offs is that we all want people to have greater access. We want people to have greater ability to attain financial services. But as I pointed out, there's this flip side of do we know who's actually attaining or using these financial services? And then there's the big issues, which is because it's in a globalized system, you end up having another term that's kind of arcane, similar to Basel, is correspondent banking. So correspondent banking is the system whereby Citigroup can work with the Bank of Kenya. And they basically work together on issues of like trade finance or, uh, or even just currency exchange. And so what often happens or can happen is because Citigroup is, has to be a very high level of Basel compliant, and maybe Bank of Kenya doesn't have to be as much, but if they are now doing a pass-through transaction, 
they have to start having the compliance level that Citigroup has because Citigroup's on the hook for whoever Bank of Kenya did the transaction with. So now Citigroup, which can absorb the cost of Basel compliance, has no problem. Bank of Kenya does. So all of these mobile money apps that we in development are starting to create and trying to get to the smallholder farmer also have this magnificent cost to a group like Bank of Kenya who's kind of scratching their head going, we can't use these. Thank you very much. We'll never ever, they'll smile politely and say, this is great. It will never be something that we issue. Uh, but thank you for creating it. So that again, it goes to this issue of this trade-off between privacy and regulation. So, you know, I said this earlier in, in our pregame, but I think a lot of this comes down to what we as consumers are willing to have as our trade-offs. You know, there, are the, there is this global system which we exist in, and we should assume that if we engage in it, we are going to give away a certain amount of our privacy. We can claim that back by we don't have to show everything we're doing. We don't have to let everybody know that we're taking our dog for a walk in the park. We don't have to like put every recipe that we've ever made or every you know, meal we've ever had to let people know that, well, yeah, we really like Mexican food, so now I get a million and one Mexican restaurant advertisements in my inbox. We actually, as consumers, have the ultimate control over this, but the, the assumption is that you know, if you're going to engage, you've lost control. Okay. Let me just, I'm going to ask you each to react to the following statement. Um, the Internet of Things is great unless the Chinese can turn the switch off. So can you each just kind of react to that? Um, the Internet of Things is, is, uh, is uh, great and is probably a prerequisite for a lot of the technologies we're talking about here in terms of autonomous driving and um, and uh, uh, you, you know uh, medical devices and all these different kinds of things. Um, I, I would sort of take it up a level instead of talking about just China. I would talk a little bit about um, you know I think right now we are at this intersection um, where technology and the ethics and the norms and values we want enshrining technology is really um, becoming a huge debate in many countries around the world. Uh, whether technology is used for for good and for uh, you know prosperity and empowerment in my country, in this country, in developing countries around the world, or whether it's used for increased surveillance and control, I think that's one of the big discussions right now. My government has clear uh, opinions on that. Other other governments uh, has as well. I think. Um, over the last year or so, we've seen these notions of human-centered technology, data ethics, human rights and technology, all these different kinds of, of conceptual ideas emerge. And I think that's all a, kind of a, a, a consequence of this discussion around what we want to, uh, to drive our, uh, our technologies. I think uh, you made a great point uh, earlier about sort of how security-related issues or national security also plays into the debate. You have privacy, you have security-related issues um, on both sides of that discussion. I think that's a discussion that each country will have to kind of, uh, kind of uh, deal with. Yeah, I have this vision of, of the other, I, would talk, I didn't talk about this here, but driverless cars, I think there's a whole series of speed bumps related to the implementation of driverless cars, but I think one of them is going to be, are we going to be okay with driverless cars if North Korea can hack the systems and have all the driverless cars crash into each other? And I know that sounds like a little ludicrous, but I don't think it's that ludicrous. So I think, um, or are we going to be okay with, you know, planes with 
no pilots that somebody can take control over and crash into the ground. So, I mean, not that we think in these terms because, you know, we're all positive people and we're not, we're all the good guys here, but um, there are bad actors in the world and so we actually have to just think about that there's this, so I think there's oftentimes sort of frothy appeals to sort of a, a techno, uh, you know, a techno utopia, but I think there's, um, they're going to be, you know, there's going to be some speed bumps and some some hiccups along the way, and I think we're going to have to think that through. So, okay, yeah. Can, can I just add one thing to that, and also picking up a little bit what uh, what you said, Stephen? Um, I, I get the point about uh, sort of the con the consumer side of the equation. In the end, consumers will decide what they want, and that will drive, you know, where capital goes and what what companies uh, do. Um, the only thing I would say is the transaction is very intransparent nowadays. You know, it's not like it used to be. You know, uh, it's not very visible to me what my data is being used for. Same thing with IoT and Internet of Things. If I have a smoke alarm uh, in my uh, ceiling that is connected to the Internet, or if I have a washing machine or maybe a refrigerator, it's not very clear to me what kind of security standards you have embedded in that. Not the same way as when I read on the back of, uh, you know, baby uh, food, or if I read on a stroller or something like that, I can very clearly see, okay, this lives up to federal regulation X, Y, and, and Z. We don't have those standards yet in the, in the IoT and cybersphere, which is one of the big challenges. I think it's, it's a lot of yeah. brilliant people working on these, but trying to establish those kind of global standards for how we want security embedded in Internet of Things and connected devices, I think is one very big uh, part of that puzzle. You know, I, my, my kid got Alexa as a gift a couple of years ago, and I just got creeped out by it, and so I unplugged it and threw it in the, threw it away because I've just I'm just you know I'm I'm not sure I want this so, so this open microphone just sort of listening to every every single conversation I have or you know every single you know maybe you know maybe some people are willing to make that trade I'm not willing to make that trade so I've I've thrown Alexa away so maybe that's the wrong thing you're not supposed to say that but I'm throwing my Alexa away. Um, um, uh, free yourselves and throw your Alexa away. I guess that's my message for this panel. Okay, Michael, what's your take on this? These let's call it the dark side of uh, technology. The Internet of Things is great if, if China or North Korea can turn until China or North Korea can turn off the switch. Sure, um, I would say I, so. I went to Mobile World Congress this February in Barcelona, hosted by GSMA, and the leading companies that are investing 5G are all Chinese. I. Um, not as, on behalf of AFRAI, but I think, you know, if we're going to discuss this from a geopolitical perspective, um, we need to, as U.S. companies need to invest more in 5G if we are really scared about these, quote unquote, you know, dictators and whatnot taking over the IoT and uh, listening into everything we do. Yeah. So, um, on the the IoT side, I totally agree that we need security standards. Um, I went from driving a 1999 Honda Accord to getting a new 2018 or 2019 Honda Clarity. So I basically had to learn how to drive all over again because it was completely different. And, um, and and basically, I have a computer with wheels now. And and the I, IoT is it's just computers that maybe it's that heat or computers that cool you, you know, whether it's a refrigerator or, or a toaster. But we need to change our mindset and start stop thinking of it as a smart toaster or a smart fridge and think of it more as a computer and apply all of the standards that we apply to a computer 
that way, right? So that it updates, uh, you know, the cybersecurity standards. Like your app, right? You're getting all these updates all the time, right? Like it's like 58 updates, and and you you know, because they found bugs. Like how often is your smart toaster, or your smart fridge getting updated, right? Not not enough. Or or an airplane finding your, bugs, right? Oh right, right, exactly. Like that tragic to, to tragic effect um, so so we have to completely change our mindset from we're a plane company to we are now a computer company that has objects that fly and and with that comes a whole different focus on standards a prioritization of what types of people are making the decisions on um, what moves forward when and why um, so you, it's not your aviation engineers it's your computer engineers right deciding whether we move things so it, I think that this is a fundamental shift that needs to occur within companies so that we have it on the IOT side and on the 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 hacking side whether it's geopolitical or or commercial hacking or just malicious hacking it's you're gonna need all of the same things to protect all of those those walls and we have to take it seriously from the beginning so everyone's so like excited about the rush to like the new product and um, we need to as consumers figure out a way to prioritize the cybersecurity aspect of, of every item that we're buying um, whether we're, we're individually buying it or companies or, or governments buying it so that that that's more prioritized than just the like the spiffiness of the the product you know, Israel, um, I think this is the first time this has happened. So in the pal there was a, some sort of a hacking at a Gaza that was an attempted ga at hacking. And so Israel actually bombed the hackers. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of that kind of technology bleeding into the real world and sort of these sorts of things where um, this is, uh, it's not just going to be like, I'm going to shut you down. I'm going to blow you up so, so yeah actually, um, the house foreign affairs committee of uh, the last cycle did a hearing on cyber war and it was really interesting because what you might not know is that declarations of work actually come out of the foreign affairs and foreign relations committees not out of armed services and so we we did a hearing to look at what, when would a cyber war be justified? When would a military attack be justified to a, a, a cyber threat? And it was a really fascinating conversation. If, if any, it's there, it's online and there's a transcript available because it's not clear. Steve. So, so Michael, to I, I so to answer the broad question of internet of things in China, I, I'm not, sh so I think you need to deconstruct what is the internet of things. Like if we're talking about Alexa, I'm, I'm with you, Dan. I, I, that thing terrifies me. Really. Unplug that thing. Yeah. Uh, if, we're, if we're talking about internet of things being sensors that have help farmers understand weather patterns better so they can increase their yield, that's pretty cool. If we're talking about things that you can wear that will give you early alerts that, you know, yeah, you're, yep, that's a pretty awesome. Uh, but I think it does come down to the question Michael posed, which is how do we make people smarter about this? And to me, that's all about, you know, we're, we're in DC, that's all about education and advocacy. What I've wondered about is that there has been no real Ralph Nader of the internet yet. Nobody's really stepped up and taken this mantle and been able to really control. There, there's some guys, and I'm trying to remember his name, the guy who has the podcast Team Human, which is pretty interesting because his argument is that we should be retaking our, the, the world from the machines. Uh, but there's not really been this concerted kind of effort about thinking about these things or advocacy around these things. 
Numina, you also raised a great point, which I think is very much true, and is also even how every company represents itself now. Every, everything is a data company. You know, the next thing is everybody's also going to be ESG friendly. Uh, but, you know, if the way companies look at themselves right now is very much, we're not, we're not creating planes, we're creating computers that fly. And, or we're creating uh, computers that wash your clothes. Everything is about that kind of maximization of data and that maximization of utility and efficiency. And so, Steve, don't, doesn't Wall Street now see itself as its competitors as Facebook and the tech companies? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, even Goldman Sachs down to their dress policy now where they're saying we're going to try and dress like we live out in Silicon Valley. And you made the comment earlier about, you know, 40-year-olds in Metallica shirts. I'm not sure I want to see that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not ready for Goldman that. Sachs, it's, no, it's, we it's, should it's, not be wearing T-shirts. <laughs> there, there are boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we really shouldn't. So, you know, they, they do look at that as they're being their competitors. You know, Jamie Dimon once in a very famous phone call talked about the fact that like M-Pesa kept him up at night because he realized that they have no infrastructure. They have no, you know, they don't have trash. So M-Pesa meaning like the, 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 the cell phone, move, yeah. moving money via cell phones in East Africa. Right. right, right. And I think he was more thinking about Google and Apple, that this was a paradigm for them. But there is this constant disruption that everybody's looking at that's coming through data and that's coming through easy connectivity. But they're really, you know, tech companies move at the speed of light, literally. DFIs don't, so it's very hard for them to engage. Regulatory agencies don't, so it's very hard for them to engage. The laws just haven't catched, caught up. And the, and the interesting paradigm is that the tech companies know this. And they know that they're going to outrun the laws. And they're just going to keep doing what they, they're going to do until there's no, cons it, it's again, it's why I go back to this issue of advocacy and consumer demand. Until there is no consumer demand for what they want, they'll just keep running ahead of the laws. GPDR is a good example. You know, they figured out a way around it in, in nanoseconds. So that's where I think you are with the Internet. All right, this has been a very patient audience. I'd love to hear from all of you. So hands, please. My friend Tom Ward from AID up here. Um, this gentleman in the blue jacket and the light blue shirt and the glasses. Anybody else? Let's see. Okay. And this uh, and this this gentleman in the tie here. Okay. And we'll get we'll get some others as well. I promise. Okay. So let's start with Tom Ward. So Hi. name, rank, serial number. Keep it short, and we'll try and we'll get several. Okay. I'm Tom. Thomas Ward. I'm technically from USAID. I have to be here as a personal citizen. Um, as a disclaimer. Um, I'm Thomas Ward. I'm from USAID, but I'm speaking as a private citizen here today. I would like to give a couple comments that one, um, USAID does have what is called the DIV, which is a big uh, place where you can get funding for innovation. Yeah, Development Innovation it's Ventures, DIV. DIV. We also have the ADS 508, which uh, deals with um, personal identification information. So, so this is like an internal us. policy of AID. The yes. ADS is sort of the, audit, the this is sort of the, the operating system of AID, and so this is a directive within the AID how you guys do your work? Yes. So that is publicly available. Um, also, um, if you were at the annual meetings, World Bank, IMF, they had a ton of programs looking at all the different cyber aspects. Um, and with that, there's a post that I did on blockchain, which we also have to kind of look at all the different technologies. Is it really safe as it tries to be? Good. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Uh, my new friend here. Yes, sir. 
Thank you. Glad to have you as a new friend. Uh, Rob Tobiasen, uh, National Association of Beverage Importers as in alcohol. Uh, this is directed to my Danish cousin. Uh, prior to Nabi, I was at 34 years with the Treasury Department, U.S. Treasury and areas of trade, taxation, compliance, regulatory compliance. Uh, culture counts. It may take you 12 minutes to do your taxes, but you still pay about 60% of your income to your national government. Uh, you think you do the first tranche of jobs and AI and the like. I mean, in Denmark, people know that the, they have care. There's a social safety net that this country clearly doesn't have, and many don't. And so how do you factor in culture when you deal with these types of transitions? Because I would think AI would be more acceptable in Denmark because a rising tide still raises all boats, where a lot of countries a rising tide raises some boats and drowns others. Brian Kwasi uh, from the Initiative for Global Development. Uh, my question is, how can Africa leverage uh, AI f uh, for itself rather than to lose, job to AI, lose jobs to AI? Um, and how can the Continental Free Trade Agreement play a part in that? Thank you. Can you pass the microphone? My, my, there's a gentleman here about one else. Hi, uh, my name is Miguel Blankhart, uh, graduate student at Georgetown School of Business and School of Foreign Service. Uh, my question is regarding the possibility of establishing an international cyber community organization, um, whether there's been thought into that uh, to avoid issues with certain countries such as North Korea, China, et cetera, um, and having them involved one way in regulating. Um, so like a cyber justice league. Correct. Or the cyber Avengers. <laughs> Some sort Something of, like that. Yeah. WTO, I'm, I'm, uh, okay. cybersecurity, if you will. Good. Okay, I think that's great. Okay, so let's start, uh, let's start with you, Steve, and we'll go this way. Hey, please answer and reflect on any of the comments, especially blockchain. You're using the microphone. Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll reflect on blockchain first off. Uh, it's... It's not impenetrable. I mean, all you've had to look at is there have been several forks, and all of the the, the two major currencies are, are obviously Bitcoin and Ethereum, and both of them have to use forks because they've had problems in the code. The whole idea behind the blockchain, for those who don't know, and I'm, I'm assuming most of you do, is that it's something called a distributed ledger. Every transaction is recorded, thereby you're able to get almost a perfect vision into who's done what and who's used what. The original idea behind it was that they People had a fear of central banks and the ability to just continue printing currency and they were going to limit the amount of currency and so you were going to understand every history of transaction. Some of the uses for blockchain are, are really quite impressive in my opinion. So I had mentioned trade finance. This is a really good way to, to reduce the cost of trade finances. It's a really good way to reduce the cost of transferring money. It's a really good way to interact through Forex because you could have this universal currency. The downsides to it are that it is not secure and that people have figured out forks, people have figured out how to hack it, people have done all sorts of things. It's also extraordinarily expensive. A ton of energy goes into actually mining any of the coins. There was all, and then there's all the issues that with all the ridiculous cryptocurrencies that existed down to like the Kardashians starting a currency. So yeah, it's very laughable. So, all of these issues still have to be played out. And by the way, the regulators stepped in about two years ago and said, okay, you know what, they're securities, we're gonna regulate them, stop issuing them. 
and thus almost all of the currencies lost their value. And you, know, you can just look at a chart of Bitcoin and it kind of looks like that the day the currency said that. So that's the issue. The other issue I want to talk about is Africa leveraging AI. One of the ways I think Africa can, can do it is, you know, we often talk about loss of jobs and that th these fourth industrial revolutions are taking, you know, are, are really hurting jobs. The thing is, all of these computer companies, oh, I shouldn't call them computer companies because they're data companies, all of these gigantic companies need people to do programming. Now we think that like Google is able to like create an algorithm and then just kind of, it goes out there and it, it exists in the ether. No, no, they're constantly updating that algorithm. It, the number I heard recently was like 2.5 million lines of code per day have to be updated and it needs people to work on those. Now, there are a whole bunch of schools that have opened up and started up to train people who used to be working on the factory line to be Bayer base level programmers. It's not that hard to do. If I could figure out how to do it, I guarantee all of you can. So, and people who, anybody can. So, one of the ways where I see Africa can participate is they, Google, one of the, they don't hire a lot of people internally but they hire a lot of contractors and they need a lot of people to work on code. Africa has a lot of people. There have been a bunch of efforts to train people to code, and there have been some very successful ones. Kenya has a great academy. Nigeria has a great academy. Promoting these issues is a way that Africa could really become like a manufacturing center for code. And that's an, an interesting way to think about the paradigm. What you would also ho hope would happen is that as somebody's learning how to code, you get some talented individuals who really learn how to code and become beyond base level coders, and they become implementers, innovators, and disruptors. So that's kind of where I see that there is an opportunity. So um, on blockchain, as Stephen mentioned, it's a distributed ledger. So there's copies of this ledger all over the place. And when you store it, it takes a lot of energy. So blockchain, like any blockchain solution, is going to be at least three times, maybe, maybe many, many more times more uh, energy intensive than a normal database. So I think that when we're thinking about development, we really need to be careful about when we're using a blockchain solution. It might make a lot of sense on a trade, uh, an international trading thing where you across countries and you actually don't need things that much. But if you're thinking about a blockchain solution for a refugee camp where they already have limited energy access, you should probably think again. Um, one on um, on the kind of the Justice League for for the internet, there is this thing called the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union. It's it's through the United Nations. I had a chance to go to one of their their meetings. It is something that the United States fears greatly. Uh, that it tries to we don't want it to regulate the internet. Uh, we don't want it to. Um, there's a lot of great uses for the ITU, like satellite placement, and so they're not blocking each other. But we really want to be careful about regulation of, of the internet, um, because it, at the ITU, every country has equal votes. And it's they not every country uh, has equal uh, interest in, in the internet's uh, growth. So one thing as the United States that we've tried to do is really uh, focus our attention at the Internet Governance Forum. It's an open group uh, people can can join. So there's Internet Governance Forums in different countries. So the United States one actually meets here in this building in July. So it's IGF USA, if you go to the website. It's a collaborative process of bringing up ideas. And uh, they, we have these IGFs all across the world in these different nations. And that feeds up to the annual meeting of the IGF, which this year will be in Berlin in November. 
And, um, and that's a really great forum for bringing up the issues. And by the time they percolate to the final um, IGF, it's like the issues are, are really considered. There might be not consensus around it, but they're really well considered and countries can take it from there. So the IGF is a really useful a way to kind of talk through the internet governance issues that we do have on um, Africa. And completely agree that, that you know, it, figuring out how to program and be involved um, in AI is really important. I'm actually taking an online class right now through MIT on, um, on artificial intelligence because I want to make sure I get it. But um, you know you can't do that without internet access, which goes back to to Mako's point. So if we're going to think about African AI, the very first thing is just get internet access so people can learn how to how to code and, and operate it. But the next is how do you integrate it in your ongoing businesses? And that's what I think is really exciting: the potential for AI and machine learning to jumpstart what what people in Africa are already doing. We all know about the immense wealth that's being created across the continent. So how can we uh, use machine learning um, and get those, those algorithms uh, developed correctly? I think there's a lot of opportunity, an exciting opportunity for cross-fertilization. I think the thing that we've seen in challenging, I grew up in Palo Alto, and the thing we've seen a lot in like people in Palo Alto teaching machines is that it's a, it was only one kind of person and it's not necessarily optimized for the whole world. And so if you have things being developed across the world, um, it, you have an, an, really an opportunity for democratizing that technology. One tool that's um, it's actually based here in this region, but it's totally focused on Africa is Frame, F-R-A-Y-M, and they use machine learning to to figure out different patterns in Africa, and you can help target like where do you put that best solar tower or the the best best types of sh stores for for selling. Um, water or, or, or diapers. Um, but it's um, an incredibly useful tool for international development. And I think that when we can think about more like kind of on the part partnership model of how to better utilize that, that tech and bring pe bringing people in so we're, we're developing it together. Yes, um, on the point about leveraging AI in Africa, as my colleagues already mentioned, I think that's um, a big question in terms of um, you need to connect the unconnected. Just to give you rough numbers, as of today, um, there's only 7% of the population on the continent who are connected online. And if we were to achieve the 2030 target of universal internet access on the continent, we need to bring 1 billion people. And in order to achieve that, we need to invest 85 billion. And that includes you know, mobile infrastructure, CapEx, um, and also ICT skills development content and policy making and regulatory uh, reform. So we have a long way to go before we can, I know it's already AI is happening on the continent and there are producers, um, but it's a long way to go. Um, and then in terms of this Justice League, um, one of my colleagues is part of the, um, the UN High Panel on Digital Cooperation, led by Jack Ma and Melinda Gates. And they are looking at various issues concerning the internet and how the UN should address it. But they're supposed to come up with recommendations during uh, UN General Assembly of this September. So I would suggest to look out for their report. 
um, to my Danish cousin, <clears throat> and we have a few other Danes in the audience, so feel free to chip in if you have good perspectives. Yeah, we pay 60% taxes. Uh, we're also the happiest country in the world, or at least we used to be, yeah. before, uh, before I think Finland took it from us. I guess that's all the kind of naked sauna time that plays in there. Um, I don't know if I'm supposed to say Thanks that. That's visual. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, we also, incidentally, the country, I think, with one of the highest uh, alcohol consumptions of the world. So maybe those things are also related. Yeah. But, <laughs> but jo jokes aside, um, I think trust plays a huge part in Danish society in many different ways. Uh, we do have a very high degree of trust between citizens and uh, uh, sort of public sector government, as I mentioned before. The interesting thing here is a little bit sort of uh, the hen and uh, the chicken and the egg. Um, you know, I think uh, digitalization of our public sector has helped build trust, but I think trust is also the basis of being able to do that. And I think uh, for us, it's been a mutual reinforcing uh, interplay. Uh, today, more than 90% of all correspondence between the public sector and citizens in Denmark are digital. So we have a sort of a digital email system. So every, th every time I hear something from my commune or my government uh, or my taxation authorities, it comes to me uh, digitally. Now, I've been in the US for about uh, a year and a half, to, cl close to two years, and I know at least by now, that that's not always the case. Here you spend a lot of time at the DMV and, and other places. <laughs> and some might argue that the physical interaction is important to build trust, but in our case, it's actually meant the increased transparency, the predictability, and the sort of the rapidness of, of digital service and digital procurement so what has, has, um, has increased, increased our trust in society and our trust between, between um, uh, sort of us and our uh, lawmakers. Uh, and the second part of that is, of course, that, that um, you, you know, we have an ex extensive wel welfare system, as you say. We have a safety net. And that, everything else being equal, that means that, that Danes are probably less worried about uh, job displacement and, uh, you know, the negative impacts of the fourth industrial revolution. It doesn't mean we're not worried. You know, I can make this argument to a, you know, to a, a blacksmith in, in rural parts of Denmark, and they will still be equally worried about job displacement. But it does mean that we, we do have some kind of guarantee that we won't be left on the, on the sort of sidewalk if, uh, if, if automation or robots take over our jobs at, at some point. I mean, that's, uh, that's basically a discussion about how you want to organize your society. If I can just also make, just touch on the um, development um, uh, uh, question. I think... Um, in, in the piece, uh, you know, we wrote in, in this uh, essay compilation, we, we talk a little bit about at least three elements we need to think about in terms of development or technology and development. One is, of course, the access part, which you mentioned very eloquently. Uh, second part is skills and education, especially trying to reach those uh, most vulnerable. So that includes sort of closing the gender gap, includes getting to marginalized groups. It also includes thinking about regional dynamics I think look at East Africa, for example. I think um, I think Kenya has about um, uh, you know 90% uh, of the population has uh, uh, mobile phones, and of that, the vast majority is smartphones with internet access uh, or something like that. If you look at neighboring countries, that number is very very different. You have 
primarily rural uh, populations, you have uh, you know, a lot less uh, mobile phones and none of them have internet access. So you have all these regional dynamics that, that, uh, that they play in. And the third part, I think, and that's what I really like about your piece, if I can just make a little recommendation, if you only have time to read one section, read the concluding uh, section, which I think really sums up nicely the, the report. You talk about the fact that you know, you know, cybersecurity issues, human rights issues, data protection, all these issues are not just things that countries like the US and Denmark should be worried about and think about and act on. It's also something the developing world needs to uh, think a lot about. And you have this interesting point that cyber criminals may well use countries with less advanced kind of uh, cybersecurity defense systems to as test beds or to try out different techniques or try out different weapons and then afterward unleash it on more hyper-digitalized hyper countries. And that's a very worrisome uh, trend if you look at all the other challenges that these countries have to, to face. Great. I think that's all we've got time for. Please join me in thanking the panelists. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.